You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Senior RX Radio is brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, the ASCP. ASCP is devoted to optimal medication management and improved health care outcomes for older adults. Learn more at our website, ASCP.com. Welcome to CRX Radio, sponsored by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. We are once again here on the floor of the annual meeting in this exciting soundstage where we'll get uh, Todd to share some pictures out about the soundstage that's got set up here. The staff here at ACP did such a wonderful job of setting this up. And today we're going to talk about a topic I think maybe a lot of us have heard about a little bit, opioids, and particularly its impact in long-term care. And we've got two great guests with me today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Mary Lee, go ahead and start off. Hi, good morning. This is an exciting meeting. Um, my name is Mary Lee Grosso, and I'm a managing partner of a, a healthcare consulting uh, firm called Healthcare Consults. And um, and the focus of, of that uh, company is on long-term post-acute care, um, provider uh, consulting, um, organizational consulting, um, pretty exciting business. And, um, and my focus is based on experience that I've had over about 25 years in long-term care um, where I worked as senior director of clinical operations for Genesis Healthcare and focused on medication management, um, pharmacy operations um, on the nursing home side and supported the nursing uh, services and physician services for Genesis. Great. And I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for coming today too. We also have Jennifer with us too. I'm Jennifer Urso. I am uh, the Director of Pharmacy Services for a uh, regional chain of nursing uh, facilities. Uh, The organization that I work with actually has um, sort of a continuum of care process where they own different companies. They own a pharmacy, a rehab company, uh, skilled nursing facilities, some personal care facilities, um, as well as home health, home care, and hospice organizations. So um, I guess I dabble a little bit in all of those uh, uh, environments, um, but I primarily in my career have spent time both in the pharmacy side of things um, and also on the skilled nursing side, similar to what Mary Lee did. Oh, fantastic. So, fantastic. Thanks for having us today. Oh, excellent. Thank you both so much. So let's start here. Um, this whole opioid thing, we see about it in the news from lay people in the news and talking about some of these, you know, obviously crises around opioids. And then we talk about it professionally as well. So let's start there. Sort of the 10,000 foot view. What is kind of the current state of the union on opioids in this country from your opinion that as it affects the long-term care space? Shall I start? (laughs) Thank you, Jen. Um, Yes, um, the opioid crisis continues to increase in this country. And um, just from a statistical perspective, um, the 2016 stats were that over 63,000 overdose deaths occurred in the U.S. Um, Unfortunately, the 2017 stats have have been released and they've gone up. There's been over 72,000 deaths from overdoses uh, with opioids in the U.S. in 2017. Um, And uh, and the government is reacting to that. There's much legislation that uh, is is currently in process or has been passed. Um, but from an ASCP perspective, um, the organization believes that the consultant pharmacist has a role in helping to have a positive impact on the 
those statistics um, as it relates to use of, of opioids in long-term care, post-acute care. Uh, and so we have formed uh, an opioid um, committee, um, what uh, it's called the Opioid Stewardship Work Group, and, and we will work very hard this year to, to create a toolkit for consultant pharmacists to have the resources that they need to have, um, have that impact um, with their customers in long-term care. Jennifer, anything to add to that? I think Marilee summed it up beautifully. Um, sadly, though, uh, those statistics are, are what we're seeing, and so um, we know that there is work to be done relative to you know the opportunity that exists for us to help consultant pharmacists and members of our organization to have the tools they need to essentially help their clients and their customers and patients and residents and facilities to um, best manage the medications that in some cases are needed, and it is a delicate balance between need and abuse, and so we're, we're trying to make sure people are uh, equipped to do that. I think, I think long-term care, post-acute care represents sort of a unique challenge in the fact that we, we get these patients who have long histories of you know, chronic medical diseases, along with the opioid therapies as well, and make, like you said, Jennifer, balancing that you know, necessary of treating, but then also on the other side of the coin is is really trying to balance, you know, the whole kind of, I guess, country's attitude about it right now. How do we balance those things and, and patients' perceptions as well? So I'm excited, Mary Lee, about the, the toolkit upcoming, so we'll have to, have to keep touching base about that as, as it comes out for the ASCP. Has your individual practices or perceptions changed at all, either yourselves or you've seen patients' attitudes change around these therapies at all? say that I have. I think the, the, the uh, and, and primarily my focus in my career has been the long-term care industry, and so I would say that yes, I think the changes have been dramatic or drastic. Um, we deal with the crisis and the impact of the crisis, I think, on many fronts. It's not just, in my experience, patient care. There are also opportunities related to um, the accountability for these medications in facilities, and so there's a lot of aspects to it that, that sort of have um, impacted what we see. And again, I, I think it's unfortunate, but we have to deal with all of those things so that we're managing this um, and being good you know, stewards uh, of the process as much as we can. Well, and, and you know, um, Justin, uh, for me, since I am not, <clears throat> excuse me, actually practicing in long-term care, I'm not a consultant pharmacist seeing patients every day. My perspective is slightly different because I've had years of experience in the industry. And so now I feel that my role is to help increase awareness among my colleagues of, of certain important issues that face us. And this is, this is one of the very big ones right now. And at ASCP yesterday, we did two back-to-back -back sessions on diversion awareness. Um, we, we touched on the, the, the tactical pieces of how to manage uh, the chain of custody, if you will, of controlled substances in the long-term post-acute care uh, setting. <clears throat> the second session dealt more uh, with the opioid crisis itself and the role of the consultant pharmacist in, in that. Um, and, and I... And one of our speakers, um, and I'll, I'll shout, give a shout out to Nancy Losbin, who is, uh, is one of our staunchest supporters on our committee, and she was one of our speakers yesterday, and she talked about how this all began, 
and and I found it so interesting that back in the early 90s, pain was considered a, the fifth vital sign. And there was much focus on pain management. And it was even even used as a, a diagnostic tool by surgeons back in the early 90s. And so we had, um, we had a focus on pain, pain management. Many pain scales were developed. However, on the pharmaceutical side, that area fell behind with... Um, uh, research uh, and and development of non-opioid pain management pharmaceuticals, and so the physicians turned to opioids to treat pain, um, and that, that sadly that continues. And um, one of the interesting uh, pieces of the the legislation that was just passed by Congress, HR six, both Senate and the House passed the bill. Included in that is dollars for research for non-opioid pharmaceuticals. Um, so we're hopeful that that will make a difference um, and that, that that can impact this down the road. I think that's interesting you talk about that because I know we talked about some statistics here and I think we've probably all seen some statistics around our country's consumption of opioid products versus other developed nations. So how do you feel about that? Is there? I always kind of look at it from a standpoint. You could look at a statistic, but is there some bias or misconception in there, or is it that we probably use that much and we have to have this kind of different mentality around it, like you spoke to? Jen, I think from your, you have a great perspective on this, I know. I guess my opinion, um, and my opinion only, I, I don't know. I'm anxious to hear if the others, and you, the, the two of you, for example, share it. Um, I guess my opinion is I'm cautious to be overly critical of our healthcare system because I think access to healthcare in our country is certainly um, something that everyone is sort of, um, I don't know that I want to use this, what to say proud of, but I think it's important that we have access to healthcare in our country for everyone. Um, and I think that from that perspective, um, there has been a an interest in, in helping patients. I don't think that when physicians prescribe these medications to patients, it was because they wanted them to become addicted or that they were trying to create other health care problems or a crisis by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but sadly, I guess, I feel like that has sort of been a side effect of what has happened in the interest of trying to provide good health care to patients who had you know, complaints of pain or whatever the case may be. And so I think it's it's sort of a byproduct of a system that tried to do the right thing. I would agree with that. And um, when we look at the opioid crisis overall, it's not just the pharmaceuticals that are being abused. Um, there is a significant issue associated with um, the synthetic uh, opioids that are coming into the country illegally. Um, and so that is an issue that has to be dealt with as well. So the, the problem is multi-pronged. I mean, we've just talked about two prongs of it. And, um, and, and there are, that means that the approach to, to deal with the crisis needs to be multifaceted. I couldn't agree more, too. And I think it's interesting. So we talked about um, kind of that idea of, of pain being like the, the fifth vital sign. That's certainly a training that I had as well. So, And you're right. 
being able to like treat a patient is that's it's, is this a byproduct of it? But you know, one of the things I think about or have been asked about is if we're using that much, what is the other parts of the world doing? Is there any big ideas we should be taking away from a pain management standpoint that you know the rest of the world's doing, or are we? Do you think we're better at it? How does that how does that look? Do you think? I'm going to harken back to something that you talked about, Nancy Losbin's presentation yesterday in the Diversion Awareness Program Part 2, because she said something that I think it was on the panel part of the discussion that was immensely impactful to me personally as I was sitting there listening to her response. Um, Different cultures have different perceptions of pain um, and the ability to speak about those types of things in, in different cultures is very different. Some cultures are more stoic, some cultures are more uh, internal, some are more vocal and I think that all of those things as well as individuals' personalities probably impact how many people go to the doctor and say those things, how many people have access to the health care that would provide them with those drugs. So I think that um, to answer your question about the United States, say, compared to another country, and I know that in DEA presentations here at, at, at ASCP annual meetings that I have attended, there have always been statistics about the use of opioids in our country versus other countries. Um, I don't know that I can answer questions about prescribing habits, for example, um, but I do think that her point about the cultural impact on how this has occurred uh, was, was spot on. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I get that's a really cool perspective. I don't think I've ever heard it talked about like that before about it's not just the prescribing. It's not just the patients. It's the patient's attitudes around it, too. It's not just the drug therapies themselves. And that's, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, Nancy should be here. <laughs> so we have this big focus on, on opioids now. Have you seen patient care been impacted, good or bad? I think that um, one of the um, points that we need to not lose uh, as we discuss this is that there is a real need in this country to treat pain. Um, And and one of the um, byproducts of the focus on the crisis is restriction of the prescribing of opioids um, and the availability of opioids. And so there's also the other side of the argument that uh, and, and a very fine line that we have to walk um, where we need to, to address the abuse and the misuse of opioids, however, maintain the appropriate use of those drugs where they are prescribed appropriately. No, I think you're right on. I, I completely agree. So I think... I want to kind of talk in general terms a little bit about patient care approaches we often see in post-acute and even long-term care, too, because I think obviously each each patient has their own unique characteristics and conditions that we have to deal with when we talk about these things that all impact prescribing. But I'm curious about how we maybe approach some of these situations or maybe our first thinking going into it, not just from a prescribing or deprescribing standpoint, but just if we think about pain, how is there better approaches to these patients? So thinking about a a new patient like acute pain post-acute care they plan on being discharged home they come with prescriptions maybe maybe several prescriptions around pain management some are scheduled some are prn is there is there kind of best practices or approaches to dealing with those things so i can't say enough about how important i feel non-pharmacologic interventions are um 
and it's not, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, I'm not suggesting that all of these things help you, every individual each and every time, but I think the combination of this is what will help us to curb the use or the long-term use, I should be specific, um, of opioids, particularly in our population. Uh, I think that, you know, if a patient is admitted to a skilled nursing facility or a post-acute facility for rehabilitation services, for example, and they go to physical therapy, that goes a long way towards helping their overall well-being relative to, you know, if they're, you know, a, a, a orthopedic, you know, post-op, for example. And I think that from that perspective, um, those types of things are useful. I think that, um, you know, there are certainly... Uh, clinical studies available that suggest that, you know, I mean, anything from laughter to heat to, you know, ice, there are many things that we can try to help patients in addition to to trying these therapies. But in the long term, uh, curbing use will, will be beneficial because of the other non-pharmacologic modalities that exist. And back to that um, uh, statement that we we discussed about um, the need, legitimate need, um, for chronic pain um, and, um, and other appropriate uses. Um, when, when it comes to acute pain, for example, post-surgical pain, um, uh, particularly in our elders um, with um, hip replacement surgery or knee replacement surgery, and, and we in long-term care see those patients oftentimes for their rehabilitation. Um, and they, they're discharged from the hospital with most often an opioid prescription. Um, and they come to us. Um, we have statistics that the CDC has, um, has shared with us about the rate of addiction that can occur within a very short period of time of beginning uh, an opioid prescription. Um, and those statistics are startling, um, that within seven days, um, uh, addiction uh, can be, begin. Um, and, um, and by the end, uh, if a patient is, continues on an opioid um, and, after the, and gets a refill within 30 days of that opioid prescription, the, um, the, chan- the risk of that patient continuing on to be on that opioid one year out is significant. I mean, it's, it, those statistics are startling. So from our perspective in long-term care as consultant pharmacists, senior care pharmacists, um, our job is to, to begin discharge planning and reduction of opioid use and conversion potentially to, to the or non-pharmacological interventions that Jen just talked about, in addition to perhaps reducing the amount or converting that patient over to a non-opioid analgesic prior to discharge from our long-term care setting. And that principle applies to all settings. If you have a senior care pharmacist working in the community, that pharmacist can work to help move that in that direction as well with a patient. What do you think about stop dates then? I mean, it's something I've always been curious about. Is that something we should consider for patients? Because I know, I believe CDC guidelines are something like three days, you know, post, you know, acute pain. I mean, is that something we should consider at some point? Or is it more complicated than that because it's pain and not something like an antibiotic where we have treatment guidelines to say this condition, this drug for this amount of time? 
I'm going to let Jenny answer that. She's very much more close to to stop dating and and, um, pharmacy operations than I am. I think that is a challenge for us relative to what we deal with because we are essentially, all of us in healthcare are charged with, you know, two things. There's the, the stewardship Pick a, pick a category of stewardship antibiotics, stewardship opioids, stewardship, all of these sort of things that we talk about in our industry now for being prudent about prescribing of, of drugs to patients. But the other side of the coin is certainly patients' subjective symptoms and cases, and they all, to some degree, have to be managed and individualized. It can't be, the, at least in my opinion, that there is a... Um, I think that can be a goal, for example, but I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, every patient can only have, you know, an analgesic of whatever category for X amount of days because every patient is different and they do have to be individualized. And I think that um, in order to best care for patients, care plans and processes need to be individualized for that patient specifically. I think that's that's the best way, in my opinion, to handle it. But uh, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, and I could add um, just a little bit to that, that if that a stop date could be helpful if it is used um, in to reevaluate the patient. Um, and, and oftentimes that is what a stop date is used for, that, that signals that there needs to be a, a, look, a, a look-see, what's going on with this patient. And does the patient still need this drug seven more days? Um, and so I think that would be the prudent way to approach stop dating of opioids. I think, that's, I think those are both fantastic perspectives on that because it certainly is, it's not as a cut and dry issue. Um, so thank you both for that. So another kind of category of patients is the hospice patient, because I have seen them have some impact around this as well from a family thought perspective as patients kind of graduate in this level of care around, you know, some of the medications we often use like Roxanol, you know, is, is there thoughts around these patients, how to best approach them or educate staff or families? I think hospice patients fall into that category of patients that we talked about earlier, that um, the need for, um, for analgesia, um, any kind of anti-anxiety medications um, are absolutely appropriate in that setting. Um, when we talk about end-of-life care, um, we, we have to always think about the impact of, of, of death um, on the patient and the family as well. Um, so, um, so I am an, an advocate of the use of comfort care, comfort measures. Um, and that, that also involves many of the non-farm uh, interventions that Jen pointed out. Um, and I think I would leave it at there. And Jen, if you have anything else to add to that. I don't think I have anything specifically to add, but I agree with you. I, you know, having worked in, in hospice settings, I am a huge patient advocate for that population. Um, I think it's, you know, an underserved group of, 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 of patients, and I don't mean that they don't have access to care. I think there's a lot of understanding that as a, as a country we still try to do relative to educating patients about end-of-life care, and I think that from that perspective, hospice and palliative care is 
is critically important. Um, and I think that there are professionals that work in these environments that are very equipped to manage concerns about um, opioid stewardship, but certainly while realizing the needs that those patients have. And then from a practical perspective, and um, I don't know if, um, if there's a, a community um, audience um, for these podcasts, but I think that it's important for a message to always be shared with the families of terminally ill patients who are receiving hospice care and opioid analgesics, that they have a responsibility to, um, to protect uh, those drugs so that they don't inadvertently fall into the hands of, of, of another person. And there's always a little sticker on those um, opioid prescriptions that we receive if, if we go to a pharmacy and, and, and have a prescription for them that says that it's, it's illegal to transfer uh, a medication to, to someone else. And that really is, that says it all. They're supposed to be custodians of those medications because they are the family uh, who, who may be administering in the home setting if, if receiving hospice care there. And, of course, there's, there's also the inpatient hospice situation where the professionals are handling it as well. Both really good perspectives there. Last patient I want to touch on, and I think this is something we're starting to see more of, is, is patients who have come to us with a past history of opioid abuse, and we need to treat their pain. How do we, again, educate ourselves, our staff, around appropriate pain management for a patient who needs these medications, but doesn't have had a past history of maybe some abuse? I think that's a, you know, a reasonably challenging or tough question to answer, um, because again, I am committed to the idea that every patient's individual or therapy needs to be individualized. And I will also say that I think that if a patient is um, in the hospital, for example, or in a long-term post-acute care setting, that there are measures in place that they wouldn't necessarily be able to potentially harm themselves or hurt themselves or abuse the medication in the same way as if they are, you know, dispensed a prescription um, that would potentially or could potentially harm them. I think it's a very, again, a delicate balance. I feel like that's a message we've, we've sort of said over and over again relative to um, what the needs are in this setting. I think that there are, um, again, non-pharmacologic interventions that can help people, um, but I think part of it does depend upon that individual's you know, recent past history, how distant was the uh, situation, how long um, when they last had uh, used or abused medication. Um, I think it also depends on the type of medication that they potentially uh, were addicted to because I think that there are variations in treatment plans based on um, all of those things. Are they on or committed to some kind of program? Um, Is there psychosocial intervention in place to help them manage all of their situations. Um, so I think that, that the interdisciplinary approach really comes into play for those individuals. You know, I, I think, again, it sounds like to me that these medications from a 
clinical standpoint of management by a consultant pharmacist, either in long-term care space or in a community-based setting, I think the thing that we have to consider that I'm getting the message from you guys is it's a lot about education, that there's a lot we need to do. It's not just the mechanics of you know the medication management, pharmacokinetics, et cetera, that we need to think about drug therapies. We have to manage expectations and staff. Is that safe to say, do you think, from, from both of your standpoints? It's, it's about getting behind, out from behind the you know, pharmacy counter computer and really delivering those messages, it's going to be impactful. Yes, yes, Justin, I agree with you that it, it always is, isn't it? With with everything that you deal with in healthcare, there's always many sides to one story and different approaches and, and, um, and that's what individualized care is all about. Um, and, and in this, this situation, uh, uh, it, there's no difference um, for uh, our approach. Um, one of the things, though, that if, when I think about that question that you just asked about uh, an addicted patient who needs pain management because they've just had a surgical procedure, for example, um, and um, we, all, we have to look at the situation from, again, so many perspectives because there there's a subset of patients who, who may be considered um, addicted to an opioid because they've re- they have chronic pain and they've received this drug over time with prescriptions from their doctor. And now they're faced with a situation where they need additional pain management because of an acute situation. Um, and then in healthcare, we have to work with patients who, who have have issues hospitalized for some of those same kinds of things, but but may have illicit addiction, and so there's so many different groups of patients that we have to work with, and as Jen said, we're healthcare professionals, we're dedicated to helping people and and managing care, so so again, it is a dilemma. It's always absolutely. Again, I guess, thank you both for being here today. I, I want to leave you with one last question. And from a practical perspective, this idea of Narcan, is there things we could be doing to educate healthcare professionals, families, patients on the use of Narcan and its availability that we, the message needs to be spread a little bit more about that, perhaps? Well, I'll just start um, and, and explain that Narcan um, is a, a, an anti an, uh, an, a, a, dose of a drug that will counteract the activity of, of an opioid. Um, and so it's used in overdoses. Um, uh, the police, the paramedics, um, and there are many states in this country now that have passed uh, legislation that allows even family members to have naloxone on hand uh, to treat an overdose. And it has saved lives. Um, and so from a, an, a professional perspective, I'm going to turn to, to Jen to, to talk a little bit more about, about the Narcan use uh, in our setting. So I guess the first thing I would say is that uh, every, you know, my, my advice to consultant pharmacists, uh, whether you are affiliated with your pharmacy provider or independent of your pharmacy provider, is to make sure that the emergency drug kits that are in your facility contain Narcan. 
Um, I will also go a step further beyond that and say it doesn't have to be the nasal spray because we are in a healthcare setting. It can be the injectable version, um, but having it on hand is critically important because I don't think, I mean, there are intentional overdoses and there, there are accidental overdoses, so it being available is important. I will also say that most pharmacy providers are probably aware of this. It's not like I'm, 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 I'm uh, you know, suggesting something that's sort of cutting edge by any stretch. Um, I think it is in most e-kits, but confirm it. Um, I also think that, that from that perspective, um, an awareness about what to do when you need it is a little different. Um, and I think that the message that is delivered to a healthcare provider, uh, a nurse um, in, a, in a skilled nursing facility or uh, something like that is very different than what you would suggest to family members, for example, simply because of the the difference in, you know, there's a, there's professional judgment involved in one case and in the other case it's personal judgment and I know that, you know, I, I think every one of us would agree that professional and personal judgment are not the same thing. Um, but from that perspective, I think it depends on the individual. Um, if they're on chronic opioids, I can tell you that, you know, there. I feel like, you know, walk into a retail pharmacy and there are signs that, you know, in states where it is available that you can buy it over the counter um, without a prescription. I shouldn't say over the counter, but without a prescription, I should say. Um, and so it is available for individuals who may uh, have concern about need for it. Um, but from our particular setting, I would just make sure that we have it available, um, you know, because I think it's really important to ensure that we have the help needed when it's when it's needed. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Mary Lee Jennifer, thank you guys so much for joining us today and monopolizing your time a little bit here on the floor of ACP annual meeting. And it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Justin. Yes, thank you for inviting us. Thanks for listening to Senior Rx Radio. Be sure to share this podcast with your fellow consultant pharmacists and pharmacy associates to learn more about better outcomes for older adult patients. Join us on the web at ASCP.com.